will. Why don't you open up your Bibles with me to Psalm 119, or you can uh, open up your program. It'll be in there, and also these verses will be up on the screen for you. Does it sometimes feel to you in today's world that the guardrails are crushed and down? And, and maybe even more that than that, that in your life the wheels have come off, in our world the wheels have come off without the guardrails being up? You ever, as you're go, going through life nowadays, as you analyze, say, the last 20 or 30 or 40 years, since that there's a huge difference in our, in our culture and society than there was back then? Really, that's kind of the very relevant topic that we want to be talking about in this series, Guardrails. And today we're going to start with the guardrails that God established for us. Because you're not alone. You're not alone in the least in that feeling. And in fact, I want to read something for you and then we're going to put some words up on the screen to see if you relate to these words about our culture and our society today. And this was written about three weeks ago. So this is what I'm reading you is right now. And it was from a CNN report on the May 23rd mass shooting at Uvalde, Texas, the elementary school I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Here's what the author of the article said. We may never know why a shooter gunned down 19 children and two teachers in a massacre Tuesday at Robb Elementary School. We may not know specifically, no. Reasonable explanations often betray such evil acts, but it's, it's not impossible to diagnose the moral muck. You might feel that moral muck is in your life to diagnose the moral muck from which such tragedies emerge. The U.S. suffers from a breakdown of the family, a breakdown of religion, a deterioration of rules and standards that signal expected good behavior, all of which contribute to the callousness, the callousness that leads to the easy taking of lives. Almost 30 years ago, on March 18, 1993, 30 years ago, that's why I brought that up earlier, the Wall Street Journal published a famous editorial titled, No Guardrails. It noted how small the barrier has become that separates civilized from uncivilized behavior in American life. If that were true 30 years ago, imagine now. It said there was a, a growing number of people who don't understand the rules, who don't think that the rules of personal or civil conduct apply to them, who have no notion of self-control. And then it went on, and here are the slides I want to show you, so you can read along with me. And it, and it said this, at the same time, the Wall Street Journal noted Personal self-restraint was devalued. Codes of conduct, both formal and informal, that governed proper behavior were torn down, deemed infringements on personal autonomy, or more recently, examples of ruling class and prejudices or the vestiges of white privilege. The journal called these codes of conduct guardrails. 
One such guardrail was the prohibition on prenatal killing, smashed by Roe v.ersus Wade in 1973. So this, he's pointing out, this is not a new problem, which has not been restored with the overturning of the famous decision recently during this summer. The decline of religious practice in the home is an obvious smashed guardrail. As people eschew religious observance, meaning they do away with it, they are more likely to follow the rules or lack thereof signaled by the broader society, meaning we're going to get drawn in to whatever our culture tells us is right and wrong, which as already noted, has shed its sense of right and wrong. Religious observance has been steadily declining since the 1950s. It's a historical high-water mark in America, the 50s were. But the number of adolescents attending weekly church services dropped precipitously over the past 30 years. The breakdown of family seems to be a concomitant problem with growing secularization. See the date on this? Now... That's kind of a downer way to start the message, but let me tell you, I find it encouraging for the people of Amazing Love. Because guess what we have here at Amazing Love, which is wonderful, a lot of young families. Our children's ministry is no longer filling up once, but twice each Sunday. And so there's encouragement in here for us as well, that we're on the right track. And we are rebuilding guardrails that have been pushed over. And, and we're personally, and as a church family, concerned how we might be examples of rebuilding guardrails, not just here at our church, not just in our families and personal lives, but as we look out, rebuilding those in our culture and society through things like our vote, and so we can do something about this, guys. I want you to be encouraged and challenged to say, as you hear today about God's law and why did God give us his law, that, that you are God's chosen. You are God's selected special people to help bring the guardrails back up in our culture because people need to have those guardrails for their own safety. More importantly, as you're going to hear today, we need to have those guardrails because when we brush up against them and, and scrape our, the vehicle of our lives, we're, we're going to see that we need someone to repair that, to forgive us for our sins. We're going to need a rescuer named Jesus Christ. And our society and culture needs that. Frankly, if we change morality without introducing people to Jesus Christ, we haven't done much for them. Because they may change, but it'll be completely a facade, an exterior change. However, if they develop a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, then things can really change deeply and internally, and that will begin to expose itself on the, on the outside of their lives. So let's dive in. The title for today is The Purpose of the Law. I think we're on the same page. I feel it in the room that this really is a common view that we have, that the guardrails and the wheels are coming off and coming down. So 
We're going to start with the three biblical purposes or lenses of the law. Now, those of you who have been Lutherans since you were born, please don't yawn. You've heard these before. They're nothing new to you. But I read an interesting article written by an individual who had recently become Lutheran. And you know what he said in this article? It kind of astounded me. Of course, I'm kind of a a longtime Lutheran is, I never heard these. I, I went to other churches before I went to the Lutheran church and became a Lutheran, but no preacher ever preached on these. No teacher in a Bible class ever taught me these. So I don't know where you stand. If you're a longtime Lutheran, yes, you've heard these, but I'm a big proponent of the fact that, as Samuel Johnson says, we more need to be reminded than we do to be taught something new. So consider yourself reminded about the three purposes of the law. And if you're new to these, I think you're going to find them super helpful lenses through which to read your Bible and to understand how it practically applies to you. You're not just going to leave here with one practical application of your reading of the Bible, especially the law portions of the Bible. You'll leave here with three different ways to apply those passages to your life. Amazing. I'm multiplying it by three today for you. So here you go. The three biblical purposes or lenses through which we see God's law. And when I'm using law here, I'm using it very specifically to describe those things God says to do or not to do. So understand that because sometimes in in our world, the word God's law is used to maybe describe the whole Bible. Even in the Bible, sometimes it's used that way. But when I use that word here today, I'm talking about the to-dos and not-to-dos as opposed to something called the gospel, which is the good news of everything Jesus has already done for you. So what are the three purposes of God's to-dos or not-to-dos the lenses through which we can look at the law. So I'm going to put three passages up here and point out some things. This is from the psalm that we're studying. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Notice I bolded, bolded, I gain understanding. And of course, as we study God's law, we do gain understanding of what the to-dos and not-to-dos are, but there's a deeper kind of understanding you get when you study God's laws, like the commandments. And you know what that is? You get to know yourself. As you study the to-dos and not-to-dos, it's going to humble you especially if you interpret them in the light that Jesus interprets them when he says it's not just about whether you're doing or not doing them with your hands and feet or with your words. It's also about what's going on in your heart, in the thoughts of your mind. And if you're falling short even in your heart and mind, in God's eyes, that's no different from falling short in what you do or don't do. So the first use of the law is it gives you a mirror to look at yourself with. If you want to fill that down below in the little blank, that's what's going to be the answer is the law is a mirror for us to be able to meditate and reflect and see ourselves and gain understanding, especially about our needs spiritually. Second one, Psalm 119, 101. 
I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. The psalmist says, look, I want to stay on the path. I don't want to be diverted from the path of God. God's path is a good path. It's a path of blessing. It's a path of life. I don't want to let my, my feet slip off it. Now, we have ways to accomplish that in our driving world nowadays. You know what, what that is, don't you? Is we build curbs on our roads. And that way, if you happen to maybe slightly fall asleep and you're wandering off the road, boom, you're going to hit that curb and it's going to divert you back onto the road. Now, you don't want to do that too hard. Actually, the other night, Julie and I were on the road at about 9 o'clock at night and we saw someone, they must have fallen asleep and they hit that median on the freeway really hard and it sent their car spinning until it landed on the side of the road. We called 911, of course, but that's not how we want to hit the curb. We, we want to stay aware and alert. So God's law serves to keep your feet from every evil path. It acts as a curb. Here's the last verse. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Remember back in third grade, and your teacher gave you an assignment? And part of it was to draw, and you were determined to have really straight lines in your drawing, and you realized that you had a tool in your little school box that would not only help you measure the length of things, it would also act as a guide for your pencil. What was that tool? Of course, it was a ruler. And that's what the psalmist is kind of talking about is God's law acts as a ruler so that we can draw straight lines and, and not try to freelance it because if we freelance it, our straight lines might not be too straight. And so God's word, God's laws act as a beautiful ruler that we can draw straight uh, lines. Let, let me tell you that this is an old, old thing. You, you think it's old because you were taught it in confirmation class or your parents might have introduced you to the law is God's mirror to examine yourself, God's curve to keep you from wandering into immorality. Uh, God's ruler to keep you drawing? No. No, these things are way older. In 1577, in a document called the Formula of Concord, this was written, the law was given to men so that one, men may have knowledge of their sins, mirror, wild men might be restrained. So original people thought, you know, even if you're not a Christian, you need a curb on your life. You need a guardrail. And then three, after they are regenerate, meaning after they become Christians, they might have a fixed rule to live by. So, guess what? Your kids are learning these things too. My man, I see him over there, was in confirmation class. I won't point out his name. I don't want to embarrass him, but he's sitting over there. Don't look at him. He got to see these pictures on Wednesday night. There you go. 
That's what I want you to think about. That's what you need from God. You need something that you can look at and go, okay, this is how I and my life are really looking to God right now. You need a mirror, I need a mirror. We need something to guide us, and greater society needs something to guide us from just wandering way off, especially nowadays. Think about it. How far have we wandered from where we were when Roe versus Wade was decided? Oh, my goodness. And we as Christians, as I said before, are challenged to help rebuild those curbs, and then we need that ruler to guide our lives into Straight lines, God-pleasing lines. So that's your answer. You probably already have it, but we'll put it up. God's law has not one purpose for you, three purposes or three lenses through which you can look and apply it to your life, mirror, curb, and ruler. Now I'm going to give you a surprise. And maybe you're a little surprised already because you haven't heard something about the purpose of God's law that you expected to already have heard, but you haven't heard it. I'm going to tell you that many people believe that what I'm about to talk about next is the chief key purpose why God gave us his law. And then I'm going to do something very surprising and say to you, that's not at all why God gave us the law. Not in the least the reason why God gave us the law. In fact, just the opposite. So, write this down. Surprising to many, what's not the purpose of the law? Paul, writing much later than the psalmist, said this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. You talk to people who are not Christians, and you will often hear this question, what makes Christianity any different from any other religion in the world? I mean, if I became a Buddhist, I would be given some Buddhist rules to live by. If I became a Hindu, I would learn Hindu rules to live by. If I became a Muslim, I would be given a Quran, which is filled with Muslim rules to live by. And if you give me a Bible, what am I going to read? Not all that much different. It'll just have the name Christian on it. It will be Christian rules to live by. And a lot of people believe that, and I'm here to tell you that's the devil's lie, and it's nonsense. Why? It's not as if there are no rules to live by in the Bible. That's not why I'm saying that. I'm telling you it's nonsense because that's not the, the big reason why God gave us those rules. You see, so often we think that when we're given rules, it's so that we can follow them and get closer to God by our obedience and our good life. But God says, as you read through these rules, here's the conclusion I think you're going to come to, especially if you've read, this has to be the case not only in your outward life, but also in your words. Even those words muttered in the safety of the walls of your home or from behind the wheel of your car with the windows all rolled up, it has to be true in your hearts and minds. 
in your feelings, in your thoughts. You can study God's word, but if you go through life every day and God's promises don't increase in the least your confidence that he's with you, if you go through life and your life is entirely ridden with anxiety, if you go through life and you find in your daily life that you're constantly angry, where is God's word really in your life? Because God's word is meant to change those things, right? It's meant to affect you right here, right now, and then for an eternity. Why? Because it gets you to look in that mirror, the first use of the law, reflect on your life and say, I need help, big time help. The real most important use of the law is to bring you to a realization that I need that rescuer we sang about. Reading God's law is like going to the doctor's office after you've done all the diagnostic tests. How do you, how do you feel in that appointment? All the tests have happened. You haven't received a phone call. <laughs> you don't know yet what's going on with your health. But you're headed into the doctor's office. Now, are you hoping that he's going to lie to you? and not tell you what's really going on? Or are you hoping that no matter how difficult the news, he will tell you the truth so you can begin to deal with it? For me, it's the second. I know it's going to be difficult if I'm told I have cancer or, or some other very difficult disease, but I want to know the truth because I want to get to the treatment. And you can't get to the treatment if you don't ever hear the truth. And that's what God's law does. It delivers truth about your spiritual condition that you are sinful. And I am sinful. And there is a treatment for that called Jesus Christ. And so through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We are told the truth. What that means is Christianity is really different from all the other religions of the world. Here's a quote from John MacArthur who noticed this. He's a pastor, well-known. Some of you probably have heard of him. There are just two religions in the world, just two. In spite of the myriad of claims, there are only two. One is called the religion of human achievement. That's treating God's law as if its purpose is to tell you the rules for life how to live so you can make God happy. And it is based upon man's own efforts and ability. It's treating the law as if you can do it. The other is the religion of divine accomplishment. Not that we need to do it, but that God has done it already for us in Jesus Christ. And it is based solely and only on God's sovereign ability. One is by human effort, the other is by divine grace. So I want you to write this down. Christianity is not a religion of rules and rituals. It is a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world. It's a relationship, not a set of rules. 
You know what Jesus calls this? Distinctiveness of Christianity? In Matthew 7, he calls it out beautifully. And he's going to call it this. I'll explain why after we, we read this passage from Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. A lot of times when people read this, you know what they think? Oh, that's those people who are really, rawly disobedient. They're living a life of pleasure. That's not the chief thing Jesus is talking about. Remember, he's got a lot of Pharisees listening to him as well. You know what he's chiefly talking about here? The narrow gate is the one that says, I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The wide, broad gate is the road that says, I can do it. I can be obedient. I can please God. The wide gate is the gate of human achievement, as MacArthur calls it. If I follow God's laws, I will, through my own effort, make it to heaven. But the narrow gate, small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life. That's the life that comes through Jesus Christ, and only a few find it. Only a few find that path that repeats this truth. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. And that is the message you're going to hear over and over here at Amazing Love. You'll hear it every week. You'll hear it maybe so many times that Jesus is your Savior that you get a little bit sick of it. But here's why. Anything that avoids the gospel truth is going to lead you down the path to believing you can do it. And why? Because you are naturally attuned to God's law. The sermons that I often get the most pats on the back for are not the ones that talk about God's grace and, and Jesus' forgiveness, the cross and the empty tomb, the victory there. The ones I get the most pats on the back for is, boy, Pastor, you really hit them between the eyes today. Because our hearts are attuned to the law and the gospel is a bit of a mystery to all of us by nature. That's why we have to keep uncovering and revealing that good news of Jesus Christ. All right, let's, let's wrap up here with the last point. So what is God's law? Can I, can I uncover what is maybe the second biggest lie after God's law is here to help you accomplish your own salvation? Here's the second biggest lie. The second biggest self-deception that our sinful nature leads us to about the purpose of the law. It is, God's law is a burden, not a blessing. So we write that down, is God's law a burden? Or is it a blessing? Now, I don't think many of you in this room, I'm seeing a lot of people I know, it's, it's, the answer's not hard, is it? Can someone tell me what they think the answer is? Just, just help me out here. Is it a burden or a blessing? Come on, someone be bold. It's a blessing. Well, because you're trained Christians, you know that ultimately God's law is a blessing. It, it may burden you, especially in your sinful nature. I'm not saying there's no part of it that's not a burden. Of course it's a burden to your sinful nature. 
Your sinful nature doesn't love being given God's rules. It rebels against that. The devil doesn't want you to believe that God's law will be a blessing to you. And so often we, <laughs> we get ourselves in this mindset. And we're reading a book on the staff right now together. It's called Soundtracks. And this is a book about the little soundtracks that play in our mind that really affect our beliefs. In fact, they are our beliefs, and that's why they're soundtracks. And then they begin to affect our thoughts, which affect our emotions, which affect our words and actions. It's like a big circle, and then it comes back around, and our words and actions begin to affect our thoughts again, and it just cycles like that. Really, what I'm asking you is, what is the soundtrack in your mind when it comes to reading the Bible? Do you believe it's a burden to have a daily devotion? Do you believe it's such a burden that you don't have time for it, that you have higher priorities, that you can't meditate on God's Word? And in fact, you know what's interesting? That word meditate actually comes from a person that is so deeply studying and so into reading their Bible that they're murmuring. The word meditate originally meant to murmur. So you're reading it, you know, and you're writing, and other people can hear you murmuring because you're meditating so hard on these words. And, and what I'm trying to challenge here today is that soundtrack that says that's not time well invested. I'm trying to encourage you on the flip side to see the beautiful blessing. And, and that's what Psalm 119 does. Man, Psalm 119, did you know? Longest chapter in the Bible. Longest psalm by a country mile. And it's all about what? How much of a blessing God's word is to you and me. So let's, let's look at it. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. You have people that are kind of against you in life. You have situations and circumstances that are against you. You have the devil, the world, and your own sinful flesh that are against you. Get wiser than them by studying God's word. I have more insight than all my teachers. You want to be smarter than Pastor Dustin? Of course you do. You can have more insight than him. More insight than all your Bible teachers. Dan Kaczynski is teaching Romans class today in second service. You can be smarter than him. Amazing. Not very many people are, but you can be if you study God's word. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. You see what it's saying? It's saying, get all this concentrated experience and wisdom that the Bible has to offer you. And, and you know what's going to happen is, if you read your Bible, it's not as if you have to do a whole lot of work to get it. God's Word is meant to give it to you as another act of God's generosity. Read the Bible, and because God is so generous, when you read his words, God's words in the Bible, God's just saying, here, more wisdom, more understanding. You want to know how to live your life? You want to know the pathway to heaven? 
You want to know Jesus, your Savior? You want to know the cross, the empty tomb, God's grace? What do you want to know? It's all right here. And God will give it to you as you study this. That's his promise. So write this down. The law gives us great wisdom, insight, and understanding. Now, I want to point out one last thing about those verses we just looked at. Once you have gives written in. Yes, God gives us wisdom, insight, understanding. However, it's not as though you are sleeping beauty, just sleeping there, and he pours it into your brain. Because I want you to see, go back to those last verses, Psalm 119, the ones we just read. I want you to see another side to those verses. How did the psalmist, we don't know exactly which psalmist this was, get that wisdom and insight and understanding because God's laws were always with him. I have more insight than all my teachers for I murmur. I'm so deeply in meditation about your word, I murmur about them. I have more understanding than the elders for it's not just a matter of going in one ear and out the other, I actually put it to work in my life. I obey it. You want to get all these beautiful gifts God has for you? Don't just read those Psalms once, read them twice and see, look, if I have God's word always with me, if I'm meditating and murmuring on it, if I am actually obeying it, it will come. God's wisdom and grace will come to me. All right, let me quote that original article again. We're going to go full circle. The United States suffers from a breakdown of the family. The guardrails are down. The wheels are coming off. Growing irreligiousness and a deterioration of rules and standards that signal expected good behavior, all of which contribute to the callousness. Remember, he's talking about Uvalde that leads to the easy taking of lives. Brothers and sisters, don't let this depress you. Let let us all together as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, look at it as, yes, it's bleak darkness. I'm not going to lie to you. It is darkness. It's the devil's darkness, but you are the lights. Jesus is the light. And let today's message be a challenge to you that says to you, we need to get out there and rebuild those guardrails. We need to get out there in our culture, in our society, by being a beacon in our own families, in our own churches, and get those guardrails back up because they are meant for our safety and for the safety of our culture and society. Now, I did something a little different today, did you notice? And I did it on purpose. I didn't read beforehand. So, with all that commentary now, I want you to hear, if you want to open up your program, I want you to hear the whole of Psalm 119, 97 to 105, and then we'll pray. Oh, how I love your law. 
I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And here, to wind it down, is a verse you're probably already familiar with. Your word, Lord, is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, oh, how we need your word to be a lamp for our feet and a light for our paths. And Lord, how we need it to lead our feet to our one and only Redeemer, your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can receive his grace and forgiveness. We need to understand that we are sinful, but that you have dealt with our sin perfectly and completely. We also need, Lord, to be challenged by the truth that our society does have the wheels coming off, but you have challenged us to be the light of the world. Help us to be able to interact with our world and begin the process of rebuilding the guardrails that we need in our culture and society. Not only so that we can please you, Lord, although we want to please you, but mainly so that we and all the people in our culture and society can be safe and safely pointed to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Join with me in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.